Welcome to the Naughty Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. We are joined today by Joseph Hopkins, uh, uh, who has a background in Nordic and Germanic studies and is the guy behind Mimisbrunner on um, the internet. Go find that website. It will be in the show notes because that is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to understanding Nordic mythology. He's also the founder of the company Hildur, um, which uh, publishes and produces all kinds of cool things that are Nordic themed. And today we're going to talk about like trees um, with <laughs> Joseph. So welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, which, I mean, let's start with, uh, do you want to give a quick rundown of what Mimi's Brunner is the, as a whole? Maybe just, let's, let's start there for anybody that doesn't know. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, once upon a time, I studied uh, Germanic studies and philology at the uh, Department of Germanic and uh, Slavic Studies at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. That's in the United States. And uh, at the time, I led a reading circle uh, that went on for years there, uh, several years. Uh, and uh, over time, we began to compare a lot of translations that we were reading, um, as well as translations that we were producing. And um, uh, we're spending a lot of time talking about news related to these topics, right? A lot of finds, archaeological finds, uh, various developments, publications. Uh, but there wasn't at the time really a platform for reporting on these things. So uh, I put together a little website, uh, memesbrunner.info. And uh, it, the website took the form of a sort of news feed. Uh, over time, this became a place for resources and articles. And nowadays, uh, you can find on the website uh, a wide variety of resources uh, built to assist with approaching um, items for from the Germanic record, especially. Uh, for example, uh, Voluspa, the comparative Voluspa is there where you can compare six different translations of the text, uh, as well as Edict to English, which is the first um, long-form study, uh, comparative study of English translations of the Poetic Edda. Uh, edit to English, same thing with the prose edda. There's one on uh, uh, Saxo's uh, Gesta Denorum, as well as Ibn Fadlan's uh, Rissala. There's a lot of stuff like that on the website. Um, a lot of original essays and articles, too, on um, somewhat obscure topics like symbols. Um, I think we have the first um, article covering the development of the so-called web of weird symbol, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, just a lot of stuff on the website um, that myself and others work on. Uh, including interviews, actually, an interview with Matthias from uh, several years ago. Um, That's true. There. Oh, nice. Uh, so, do you do you hire do you hire a team, or do you just have like a team of people that that write them, write the articles, and uh, so uh, we do have a little bit of a team there. Uh, I'm the core of the team at this point. Uh, a variety of other individuals have contributed over the years. Uh, almost all of the art on the website. Uh, one of the most unique features of the website is that it features uh, uh, quite a lot of original art um, from a good friend of mine. Uh, her name is Rim. Uh, her last name recently changed to Baudi, Baudi, I believe. And uh, nowadays she's based in France, uh, but I'm a big fan of her work and really happy to work with her uh, in producing this material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that takes us nicely onto you uh, asking us about our artwork. Yeah, I love I love to see representations of this material. You know, um, so anytime 
I get a chance, uh, I sniff it out. <laughs> yeah. So we, our, our work is done by, uh, the Saxon storyteller. Um, also Matt Greenway, a good friend of mine. And yeah, he comes up with some interesting designs sometimes. It's great stuff. Yeah. I've, I noticed it. Uh, so I was curious as to see how this would turn out, you know, the focus on trees and uh, the discussion we're going to have. Oh, I'm sure he will have some smart ass way of making those look <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I like that we, you know, it's fun to have a little bit of humor in the artwork, I think. And it, especially for a podcast, it draws people in and, and kind of gets them to, because even, you know, you have to advertise a podcast, which is obviously a predominantly audio kind of uh, way of listening, you know, way, way of getting the material. Obviously we do do videos, but it's predominantly audio and you still have to use things like Instagram to like catch people with visuals. So that artwork is important to kind of like pull people in. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, artwork is the, the, meat hook for the brain you know you draw them in with the art and in, in itself it's a means of storytelling you know we hear in the record of depictions of things like shields tapestries that we no longer have you know we, we have no shields of that sort but they certainly seem to have existed as um, either a means of inspiring storytelling or uh, as a representation of it uh, in the past you know just keep it on topic yeah absolutely and i guess you get them well even the the, the poles of the state of churches, places like that, they're all stories in some form, I guess. It seems to be kind of everywhere. That, every, well, it's everywhere. And I guess people haven't changed in a sense of back then, if they were as a, there was a surface that could be carved or written on, you would put some form of story or picture into it. And we, we do it the same in just a digital format now i guess i don't know if you see have you guys seen the the whole ai thing that seems to be sweeping the internet at the minute? Uh, oh you mean that program that that steals the original artwork of artists out there and then mm -hmm. synthesizes it and, and turns your face into art yeah i've seen yeah, that. that one yeah fuck that, that. <laughs> people, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it seems to be completely dividing people at the minute um yeah, for anybody that doesn't know what it is, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, if either of you two know, but it seems as though it's an AI program and you type in something, like whatever you want to see. Um, you know, like, I don't know if you, you can submit your own pictures as well and then it, it puts you... That's the latest one that I seem to have seen is that people have got... Yeah, again, I'm not 100% sure how it works, but I've just seen on Instagram a bunch of like, people that I follow, particularly like model-esque type people that have got these AI images of themselves. And I, I assume they must give one image and then it just recreates a bunch of AI-created artwork from it. It's, it is fascinating. It's a great way for, you know, the servants of the machine to build up a nice catalog of all our ugly mugs. I look yeah. forward to the uh, regulations uh, catching up with uh, what <laughs> uh, digital mm -hmm. plagiarism uh, at this point. So, that oh, nice. it's, <laughs> it's 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 it is insane. It's it's there's definitely a, a lengthy topic and a lengthy conversation to be had about that. Because even you know we have it, we've had it a bunch of times on here with tattoo artists that we've had on, and you know particularly in this, you know, in this 
area when a lot of the towers they draw them on by hand and each one is unique it's not coming from a stencil but then you get other people who will take a picture of that and then pull it take it to, to the run of the mill towers and just get a like for like copy and at what point does that become plagiarism yeah that's um that's a good question right um i i personally don't have any 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 good answers to that um but i i definitely think that the tattoo artists should talk internally about <laughs> that stuff yeah it's it's tough and it's like you say with the with the whole digital ai thing it's it is theft in a, in a in a way it's all kind of i don't know i don't know where it's all gonna go um if anybody down the drain, just, my friend down the drain <laughs> hopefully hopefully i do have a crying puppy in the background unfortunately so oh, if no. anybody can hear if anybody can hear that i think he knows that tomorrow he's going for his balls off oh poor guy so I think maybe he knows and he's playing up as one last hurrah. Um, I do feel a little bit guilty about it, but it is it is for the longevity of him. You know, he's a, he's a cock spaniel and they have prostate issues in later life. So it's better to get it, get it done early and try and avoid that. But I feel, I do, I do feel like I'm kind of betraying my best friend a little bit. It's, uh, that was a shift. That was a topical shift. Oh, I just, <laughs> like, I just, I could just about hear him and I wasn't sure whether he was picking up on mic. So uh, I thought I'd just put a little disclaimer out there in case anybody heard like a little whimpering in the background. It's, it is Rocco. He's, he's just playing up a little bit. Um, yeah. So let, I mean, let's, let's shift whilst we're shifting gears onto trees. Cause when, uh, when Bob sent me this and was, Kind of the, I didn't get much before the podcast. The premise was trees, and I was like, hmm. And I, I wasn't. I guess on the surface, it sounds quite a boring subject, but I've learned by now that I know that those ones are the ones that are the most interesting, and are going to be the ones that I really kind of sit up and learn things. <laughs> you don't like trees, Dan. I love trees. I, I love trees. They're very important. Um, and actually, we're doing we're selling selling a T-shirt at the minute on the website to plant a tree for everyone sold. So you can go check that out. You know, I, trees are super important. But obviously, <laughs> I was I'm very interested to see how trees, as a very broad subject, relate specifically to like Nordic mythology, the Viking Age, and where we go. With that, particularly when um, I think we're going to try and link it to Christmas as well. Sure. Easy. Yeah. Well, Dan, let me ask you, uh, when you think of trees and you think of Norse myth, uh, what comes to mind like immediately? Don't, you know, just whatever comes to you. Oh, well, Yggdrasil. It's got to be. That's got to be like the, the main thing. Right, right. Anything Is that the else? right answer? I, there's no wrong answer you know i've just it's a good it's a good jumping off point uh so, oh, I, I, I don't i'm starting to sweat you know take my sweater off i've done enough of these episodes now i should know better 
Go ahead. Go on. <laughs> uh, I would. The next thing I would say: the importance of trees to, like, culturally, in a sense of stave churches, building boats. Like, there must have been an importance to them. And also, I can't remember who was it that we had on recently. Was it this on here? I think it was. Um, and we were talking about how they used to cut off all the branches. Mm-hmm. Um, and and leave them for for a generation or, or longer, and allow the sap to soak back in. So there clearly was a very deep understanding of how to manipulate the trees, I guess, for their own benefit as well, and a, and that connection. Right, right. But let's also think about you know when we talk about cosmology. You know, you mentioned Yggdrasil, right? The center of existence. You know, this central tree that everything else sort of rotates around, right? But also self-conception, you know, throughout uh, Old Norse poetry, uh, whenever you encounter mention of a tree, chances are you're actually referring to people, right? Uh, Oftentimes, for example, in skaldic poetry, just a word for a tree will be used um, in place for a person, right? And the reason for this, uh, it would seem, is that- I got new, I know what the answer was now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no right or wrong answer uh, it's, <laughs> was it ash and elm is that what you were looking for yeah ash and embla you know the etymology of, of embla is is not quite certain um elm is an attractive uh potential uh but it but linguistically it is it is a little bit of a problem uh to try to fit oh, that really? yeah uh, to, a, are, to a moron like me it's like that fits perfect <laughs> Well, well, like the sound of it, I'm like that. That is like the same word, but with a few few extra letters thrown on the end. Well, it's it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and and uh, I want to say I don't think you're a moron, not at all. Uh, feel free to, you know, of course, it's your podcast. You should answer, uh, ask any questions you like. But but it is a complex subject that doesn't get a ton of discussion, right? Uh, this this central focus on trees, uh, and there's a variety of reasons for that, which we can get into, but. With self-conception is a good way to start with this because it, everything else sort of branches off from this, right? This idea that uh, uh, humankind comes from trees is really, really interesting uh, and is something that should be kept in mind when discussing trees generally in um, Old Norse uh, myth, as well as in Germanic mythology, just more broadly, okay? Uh, the idea that mankind comes from trees and that at the center of existence is this great immense tree um, is really, really interesting. And uh, in my opinion, it's something that should always be kept in mind when perceiving or well, attempting to attempting to uh, picture uh, a lot of these stories and, and what's going on here. Right. Um, the idea that that trees is where everything comes from right? Well, from the center of existence, as well as humankind, uh, really plays out in a variety of other ways in the text too, right? As well as in, in ritual, like everyday ritual. This is something that that has received uh, a good amount of attention recently uh, from books like um, uh, Chris Abrams' uh, Evergreen Ash, as well as um, uh, Carol Cusack's The Sacred Tree, uh, Bentley's Trees in uh, the Religions of Early Medieval England, and a variety of other texts where um, this exploration of a worldview where everything centers around the tree um, gets really discussed at length, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a period where this wasn't receiving a lot of attention, uh, but that has 
return pretty recently. Um, some of it also in a sort of, you know, climate change lens, uh, Ragnarok very easily, very readily uh, lends itself to an interpretation of, um, you know, uh, a prophecy of climate change, uh, right? And then renewal uh, thereafter. Uh, you know, and speaking of self-conception of trees, uh, uh, these two survivors of Ragnarok, the way that they survive is by way of going into a Holt, uh, which is a group of trees, right? Mm -hmm. A sort of reduplication of the creation of mankind by way of trees, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's important to keep in mind when we think of Norse cosmology, as well as uh, self-conception of, for example, uh, Viking Age peoples, and uh, as we can discuss, most likely also broader, more broadly, uh, the pre-Christian Germanic peoples in general. Mm -hmm. That just yeah made me think that we have to put ourselves back a thousand years ago, and I imagine that topographically, good word, the landscape <laughs> would have been very different. Um, and in terms of, you know, we, especially, you know, some of us live in complete urban environments where you might see a tree that's planted on the sidewalk or the pavement, kind of like those nice pretty ones that are there just for, for sure. But it's not real nature. That's not what it would have been like in the Viking Age. Yeah, and especially in a place like Iceland, where, you know, the stock of trees would have been pretty readily expended uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and this has a big impact on on the record as we receive it. Uh, you know, a lot of what we receive seems to have been transmitted through uh, an Icelandic lens, right? So words for trees um, get kind of mixed up. Uh, you know, when you hear Yggdrasil described as an ash, uh, there's a good argument that this quote-unquote evergreen ash was not conceived necessarily of as an ash. You know, it could have just been uh, ash as a word for a tree, right? Uh, oh, okay. For oak, you know, um, Iceland famously uh, is not a place of a huge diversity for trees, especially when compared to, you know, continental Europe, mm -hmm. right? I think we definitely do see sort of like a loss of knowledge, environmental knowledge in, in the move to Iceland. Um, I was thinking about that um, just a couple of days ago because, you know, you have the Ur rune as well. Uh, um, that's a yew. And the yew tree gets really old and you can grow for about 3,000 years, um, mostly for 1,500 years, right? But the ash tree is 250 years. It's not a generational tree in the same way, uh, same way as, you know, oaks and yew and, and those trees that grow for like several thousands of years. Yeah, any, any mention of biota, you know, any sort of like animals or plant life or anything like that, that's all super interesting uh, coming from Iceland. You know, for example, they mentioned a squirrel, you know, there's, as far as mm -hmm. I understand, squirrels are not there's no squirrels in iceland and you get some really interesting manuscript depictions of squirrels uh yeah, some very fanciful yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know clearly this is from an individual who doesn't have a model squirrel to draw from yeah. okay yet understands that it you know goes up and down this tree uh i i, I can relate to that <laughs> on once is because because the first time i saw a chipmunk <laughs> If you don't, if you can't see where this is going, also we don't have chipmunk chipmunks in the UK. Oh, yeah. not, and the only interaction I'd ever had with the chipmunk was 
Alvin and the Chipmunks. So I don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon of Alvin and the Chipmunks. There's Alvin, Simon, Theodore, the two, the, the three chipmunks, and they all wear like green, blue, and red t-shirts with the letters of their name on. Um, but that's that, that's all I knew as a chipmunk. Okay. Then I went to visit my sister, and she well, she lives in in Whistler, and I saw a chipmunk, and those things are fucking tiny, <laughs> and I mean tiny, like what, like three inch tall at bet, not even maybe not even that, maybe a couple of inch tall. I was expecting something the size of a dog, <laughs> um, just because I like I'd never. I'd never seen one. I never really Googled it either. I don't know if that was necessarily as big a thing when I was a kid, but like it just wasn't. So I just had this preconception of of it being this big animal because we just don't have them over here. And I guess maybe that could be a similar sort of thing is that you're you're preconditioned with what you hear and then you kind of just assume a certain thing and go on into adolescent thinking a, a chipmunk is a dog size. I guess, I guess a dog size chipmunk would be like a beaver. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sizable rodent. Uh, yeah, we, well, this happens a lot, it seems, uh, with with the Icelandic manuscript tradition. Uh, and whenever plants come up or anything like that, it raises a lot of questions, right? So uh, same thing happens with trees. You know, there's a lot of discussion about this. Tree words uh, in the Icelandic corpus are, um, you know, they're kind of questionable if they're actually referring to trees uh, as we would think of them today. You know, and also this this taxonomy that we use today is not something that was used in the medieval period, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't. They thought of trees and plants very differently than we do today. Um, they weren't, you know, genetically testing them or you know producing um, theories of their evolution or anything like that. So, thanks, sort of reconstruct- thanks a lot, Linnaeus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes, uh, like- sometimes I chuckle and just pretend I understand your jokes, Matthias. <laughs> <laughs> just goes so far ahead. I was like, hmm. <laughs> I, I was, I was just throwing shade on the on the the Swedish <laughs> scientists back in this what is seventeen hundreds who who came up with the taxonomy for plants. He's okay. sort of like the the, the father of uh, of uh, of all that shit. Um, mm-hmm. And and one of the things that I'm really uh, really uh, pissed off about is that he called the fungi the uh, the peasants of the plant world. Obviously, doesn't understand anything about the bi- biology of of, of of fungi. But yeah, that's a side note. How dare he? How, <laughs> dare, How dare, he? dare is he? How dare he? <laughs> right. So it's really hard to get in that headspace before you know taxonomies ruled and we had like modern understandings of plants so for example when i translated the nine herbs charm uh you know sitting down and trying to make sense of what these plants were supposed to be primarily by way of etymology uh is really a tall order you know there's a few of them it's quite unclear what they're referring to some of them have very clear descendants in modern english for what that's worth in this case uh but some are are very obscure uh, partially for this reason, but also there's a sort of animism uh, involved with older notions of plants, where they were see- perceived as as living in a, in a different sense than we perceive of plants to be alive today. You know, mm-hmm. nowadays plants are seen as uh, very different from us in certain ways, whereas in the past, you know, they may have been seen more similarly. Uh, and you can kind of see this in the Nine Herbs Charm, at least in a figurative poetic sense where the plants are, uh, in my opinion, sort of rallied as if they are an army uh, to fight uh, against this dragon-like entity, this worm by Woden, uh, 
in this old English charm. That's my interpretation of the plant uh, uh, army. I'm, I'm having a lot of images from the old Fantasia movie going in my yeah. head right now. <laughs> 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 it's like little plants going on. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I assume there would have been a much deeper connection to to plants and and I guess wildlife in general and just nature as a whole than we than we have today. For sure. I mean, you know, when we get meat that we eat, it shows up in a um, air conditioned, uh, refrigerated, artificially lit environment. We don't see the animals that have been killed uh, for that meat. It just arrives. You know, we definitely have a very different perception of food, uh, of our surroundings, of the seasons, you know, even of aging, you know, um, there was a time, of course, where everything around you would have been made by someone um, within a few generations uh, who you knew, uh, and um, everything would have had have had a history like that around it. You know, animals would have come from a certain amount of miles around you. All sorts of grain would have come from your local environment as well. Uh, that time is certainly long past, but uh, that definitely hints at a very different relationship with one's surroundings uh, than what we have today. Uh, and it's very difficult to tap into and understand uh, that pre-industrial uh, relationship with one's environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I often think about this because I very, I very much support that you should try and keep things as local as you can, and people should eat because, like, the whole idea of seasonal vegetables uh, and seasonal food in general, like, it's kind of disappeared thanks to you know, big supermarket chains, you can get everything you want all year round. You know, you can pick up sweet corn, whatever you want, or avocados, whatever, like wherever these things grow, they're just flown in and you can get them all year. Like you don't have to just eat what's readily available, but I would support eating kind of what's available and seasonal until I really want sweet corn. And then I'm like, I can just go and buy sweet corn. Or I can just go and buy it. And it's a tough thing to kind of get out of that mindset of like, I just really fancy this thing. So I'm just going to go to the shop and buy it because it's there and you, and you can. Whereas that was, that wasn't an option. You had to eat what you grew and what was around or what you could trade for. We have certainly been conditioned uh, to, to enjoy a diet that could be described as pretty much anything that would be put on a burger at this point, you know, uh, these things that are definitely out of season most of the time, but mm-hmm. you know, we're also missing a lot with this too. Uh, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest where I live historically, this area is a paradise for food. Um, there's just so much food everywhere. Uh, and a lot of it is, uh, you know, unknown to the day to day, uh, in people, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, for example, salmon berries, they're native here. Um, they're excellent, but you would have, you'd be hard pressed to find a place that would serve you a salmon berry unless you really sought it out. Uh, yeah. These uh, industrial, the industrial food distribution system is extremely inefficient. And, um, you know, so much of it just ends up straight in the trash too. Uh, oh. keeping it as local as possible um, is difficult to do nowadays, mm-hmm. you know, both financially and, you know, in terms of just finding this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it may sound like we're getting so much from it, but I, I would argue that we're missing out on a lot too. Um, you know, these seasonal herbs. Uh, oh, it tastes so much, so much better as well. Right. And so many things when that we don't know that we can eat. Uh, you know, in Denmark, uh, New York food, the New York food movement really brought some of this 
into mainstream discussion. Uh, you know, Noma the restaurant there, uh, some really, really interesting stuff. Like, you know, you can eat all the stuff that grows by the sea, uh, instead of just eating sausages all day or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. it's a really, really interesting topic. These, these traditional food ways and how they've changed, um, and mm-hmm. where we're going due to our dependence on an industrial, um, food supply chain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we also see, of course, with the industrial food supply chain is that it can break down yes. and and all of a sudden we're, we're in deep shit uh, because, yeah. you know, there are like that's what we saw with the the pandemic. Right? Um, closing down ports, toilet paper. Uh, that too, right? But you know, when we when when they were closing down ports or you know different uh, production facilities had to close down and so on, all of a sudden, you know, um, the, uh, the 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 shelves in the supermarket looked like something out of nineteen eighties Soviet Russia. Oh yeah, <laughs> flour. You just couldn't get flour. But that's going to be thinking. Do you remember when that? I don't know. Did this affect you guys in in America when that um, Lado got his ship stuck? in the canal between Africa and mainland Europe. I think um, so. I think I can't remember. I can, what, what's, the, what's the canal called? I, I, I completely forgot what Panama it is. Canal? Is it the Panama? No, it was the Suez. 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 Because yeah. Panama is the one in, in um, they're amazing things as well. In Panama. Like, <laughs> it's a Panama. Well, yeah, but, but just, just the fact that they built these canals that cut through just to, because how much time do they save the fact you don't have to go all the way around? But anyway, yeah, when when that guy just got his ship stuck in the, I think it was the Suez Canal, they just stuck there and everybody had to either back up and wait or go all the way around. And for months, we just had issue after issue of getting food and items from you know from china in the far east it was ridiculous just from one guy kind of like just being like oops figured i could get this here couldn't my bad so, my so bad. We, don't, we don't even need like a, a, a like a global catastrophe or no, just one guy just like, it's just some some idiot somewhere who fucks up yeah, just like, <laughs> that's great that, like, what, if that's you in that because we've all been we must have all been in that position where we've like done something like a little bit silly or like taking a turn usually when it's driving you've like gone down the wrong way or something and then like people start backing up behind you and then you start to panic and sweat you're like fuck how do I get out of this and you don't really know everyone's had that kind of feeling now imagine that when you're stopping like the fucking supply chain to the entire of Europe and you just like put your shit down and like oh fuck I'm a month like well it was certainly weeks anyway it's like shit I'm stuck here and someone's got to come and pull you out. And he's like, I'm sorry, guys. What, what do you want me to say? <laughs> I, I fucked up. My, my bad. So much for progress. <laughs> yeah. We've certainly come far as a, as a species. <laughs> oh, yeah, we have. Um, no, I, went to, I did actually want to play back to, you mentioned about like eating berries and I guess just living off the land in general. Like, that's something that, most people just have no idea about. Um, I get like for the for the limit uh, for most people, and including myself, it's like I could probably trust eating an apple off a tree. <laughs> like if there's an if there's an apple tree, I'd be like, that's an apple, I can eat that. And but for for the you know for like I said, for the most part, I just wouldn't dare eat berries. Obviously, like raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, things like that. Um, but outside of that, it's just not something. I would do when 
when I was lost in um, in Norway with a little Aina Selvi kind of took us around some burial places, burial mounds, and he was just picking these little berries up off the from here, there, and everywhere. And I was like, so impressed by it, the fact that you just know what's what, because that's so lost to me. Like that's just not in my my wheelhouse anymore. That was lost generations and generations ago. That's just gone. Um, and the fact that you can just kind of walk and pick berries and be happy and know that you're not going to be shitting yourself in six hours is very impressive to me. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so much lost knowledge like that. You know, I, I myself, you could drop me in the woods for three days and I would be in a dire situation. You know, I don't mean to imply otherwise. I'm certainly a, a child of industrialization. You know what I mean? So um, it's an interesting topic. I grew up in Georgia and uh, in North Georgia, there was a big push for some of these traditional folk ways to be recorded by way of the uh, Foxfire series. Uh, so I've always had an interest in these topics um, for sure. Mm-hmm. Do I mean, do we know how that would have been passed down? Is that kind of, do we find that recorded in, because I imagine again, it would be very easy to record it through stories um, you know, of what is safe and what's not safe, or is it just innate? Was it innate to that time where you just kind of just passed down without even having to explain it? You just kind of know what to eat. And the same with it, there are some animals that just know what's would, good and what's bad. You would definitely not necessarily need stories as such. Like, well, like you know, for instance, in a, in a scenario where you're foresting and you have your kids with you. You're just picking the um, the berries or plants that um, that are edible, and the, 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 the children will see that, and you you also demonstrate that too. And if they start picking plants that 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 aren't edible, then all you need to say is like, "And eh, nope, not that one. This one instead." That's a that's a standard way that that people have learned these things across the planet. Right. Yeah. This is a uh, you know just traditional knowledge passed down among. Mm-hmm by way of communication and day-to-day activity uh we we certainly don't have anything from you know any kind of like poem that says oh don't eat this berry or whatever and the uh uh germanic record although that would be extremely cool yeah. uh the, <laughs> the night of charm for example uh doesn't warn against this or that although the the paste that it recommends making uh does not sound like it would be good to consume that's for sure um this sort of thing, uh, it just gets lost with industrialization, really. Uh, once industrialization comes and people start moving into cities, they just have no use for some of this information. And that's when it massively evaporates. Uh, before that, it would be very difficult to even attempt to trace where this sort of knowledge transmission began um, or how it you know, would even be transmitted. Most of the sort of day-to-day stuff just doesn't make it into the record uh, at all. Mm. But you, there's cookbooks and stuff, uh, you know, that we do have. So some of them, unfortunately, not very old uh, in the in the Germanic space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and re- actually returning to trees, uh, uh, this is pretty interesting, too. We don't really get information about ancient um, forestry practices in, in the Germanic record, uh, not in the Old Norse record either. Uh, as an extension of that, but we do get some insight into practice uh, involving sacred trees and sacred groves, right? Now, sacred groves uh, still exist today in places like um, parts of Africa, uh, India, um, Asia, 
Right. But they used to be a uh, focal point in uh, uh, Europe uh, for, for the Germanic peoples, uh, for people uh, within the classical sphere, you know, before Christianization uh, and returning to the self-conception of being descending from being descendant of trees, uh, as well as the cosmos surrounding a tree. Right. Uh in practice, it appears that the focal point of cult too was a sacred tree or a group of sacred trees, right? Unfortunately, this is kind of tough to identify by way of archaeology because these trees don't leave a lot of, um, they don't leave a lot behind, right? Uh, in some locations, which appear to have been groves, we find a lot of bones um, as well as I believe beads, right? Uh, that have been concentrated into a certain area that seems to have been heavily forested. And the idea is that this may have been a sacred tree uh, or, or a group of sacred trees. Right. Uh, and yeah. uh, we have the place ahead. names too, right? We have the Lunder, uh, place names that seems to suggest sacred groves that they're pretty, pretty common across Scandinavia. Right. Like a God name in, in genitive, you know, so mm-hmm. Odin's mm-hmm. grove. Our holy place, and many times these holy places may actually be groves too, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like these uh, V or whale uh, place names uh, seem to have been groves. <clears throat> also, some of the toponyms um, are just like singular tree names, which also implies that there was something special about this tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> really interesting topic. Uh, oh, actually, you know, just to add something to that, uh, it's kind of interesting in the um, in the 1600s that what we see in in Sweden, um, if if you are Swedish or you uh, have a, a Swedish heritage, you might have a, um, a a like a tree a last name, and a lot of those tree last names they actually come from from the 1600s. That was a uh, the uh, uh, name that soldiers would take because you know, uh, Gustav Vasa he uh, um, he com- he reforms the military and 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 reforms conscription in 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 Sweden mainly to kick Danish ass, uh, but later on also to, also to 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 kick ass in the rest of the Baltic, um, and um, and and so he he basically sets up like uh, regions across Sweden where he says each village has to pay for a soldier. And then there's, there's like a, an amount of, of, you know, grain and pig, and, you know, those kinds of things that the soldier must have. And, um, and, and those soldiers, once uh, they retire, uh, they, they get a little house too and, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and uh, they usually take a, a tree name uh, as their last name in context of doing that. Um, because obviously they, they 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 just came from the general peasantry and and as such they didn't have much of an identity. But all of a sudden, as uh, soldiers and veterans, they they get that identity and that identity they then reflect in a tree, <laughs> which I just find fascinating. It seems like this curious revival of of, of sort of um, that old custom of 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 identifying with trees in Scandinavia. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Actually, I wasn't, I wasn't aware. It is. It is fascinating. And um, so, why, where do you think this all kind of comes from? I know it's like a big question of having this giant link back to trees. You know, the idea that we come from, literally come from trees. And again, like Mateus was just saying, then you're taking the name of 
the tree. There obviously is some deep connection, I guess. Is there a starting point? And I assume it goes much further back than Nordic mythology and the Viking Age. Well, the the first indication we see of this identification with uh, descending from trees is actually in Tacitus. Uh, the, there's a group, a confederation of Germanic peoples uh, that Tacitus writes about who trace their lineage from a grove, a sacred grove that seems to be the focal point of their practice as well. Uh, and uh, that would imply that this idea was occurring around the first century as well, and probably a lot earlier than that. So this is pretty archaic stuff. Um, there are some indications that this, this also may have been an Indo-European belief. Um, there's Vedic material, uh, which, you know, we can return to the subject of uh, Ash and Imbla. Uh, this idea of these two human beings descending from trees seems to potentially go back to a cluster of motifs from that period. Uh, we see in Vedic material, these first two humans or these early humans who uh, were the female is actually like a, a vine around a tree seems to be the image there, uh, which has led to a bunch of discussion about Embla um, actually referring to a vine of some kind that would climb up the tree uh, as a reflection of, you know, sexual union or um, some sort of potency surrounding that. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about what, you know, Imbla could mean with comparative data like that. Uh, there are also, you know, in the classical world, ages, um, and with some of those, in some of that material, it mentions descending from, tre descending from trees too. So, you know, this could have been a really, really early motif that is reflected in the Germanic record or motif cluster, um, or it could have been some kind of innovation or other means of, or a reflection of an other means of diffusion among the Germanic peoples uh, from an early period. But I do think that Ash and Imbla, you know, that's a specifically Icelandic image, this idea that wood would come, would appear on a beach rather than, you know, be within a grove. Um, that's that something you only get in the Arctic, man. <laughs> yeah. Driftwood. <laughs> yeah, the driftwood, right? We get it out here, of course, in the Pacific Northwest really extensively. But uh, uh, the idea that, that for some reason it would need to come from driftwood, you know, sounds very, very island to me. Uh, yeah. And I'm not the only one to, you know, I'm certainly not the first to think this. Uh, so we could, you know, conceivably project backwards um, to where this early idea of the gods created humankind from um, trees in a grove. Uh, and the gods themselves were very strongly associated with trees uh, throughout the record. You know, we have, for example, Thor's oak was targeted uh, by uh, Boniface to cut down, you know, as a act of essentially religious terrorism. Uh, and then you have Ermansul, also among the continental Germanic peoples, uh, which its name would imply it's some sort of pillar, Sul, but uh, it could have been, you know, made of wood. It actually could have been a tree as well. Uh, and it could have been just like a figurative uh, way of describing it. Um, Tacitus also mentions uh, the targeting of groves um, when going to war with Germanic peoples in, uh, I think, Phrygia, right? Am mm -hmm. I right about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so throughout the record, you see that, like, you know, there's this intense focus on these groves and trees uh, uh, just constantly over a very long span of time. And what's interesting is how little of this really makes it into pop culture depictions of, uh, of for example, the Viking Age, you know. Very rarely do you see uh, a sacred grove like in a video game uh, about uh, the North Germanic peoples or um, in films, right? Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like Yggdrasil is often kind of like um, explained away as some sort of like 
machine or something rather than uh, a reflection of a, a focus, a psychological focus on, on trees. Uh, also, yeah, this, well, it know, doesn't, sorry, I just want to say it doesn't jive with the whole, these are the stupid bloodthirsty barbarian warriors from the North, uh, from, from the cold, right? Stony, yeah. rocky, uh, I keep it North. cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Keep it, you know, you keep entertaining. We, we can't have the image of them running around barefooted, uh, like uh, waving their arms around in, in, in a nice grove and, and being yeah. all hippie like. Like that's for the Celts. That's for the Celts, right? For some reason, the Celts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, yeah, they certainly also had a focus on growth. You know, it appears to have been pretty damn widespread uh, uh, throughout ancient peoples in general, even you know far beyond the Indo-European sphere. You know, this is essentially a human universal as far as we can tell um going back to a certain point oh yeah man the the, the baobab uh, tree and uh, and its significance for cultures uh, in the sub-saharan and uh, uh, africa is, is like huge right like um similar to what we see in Iktarsit as well and um what is it the yura in um in uh, uh in australia right they they're currently reviving their uh, ancestral traditions uh, from uh, markings on on bullock trees that you know have very very distinct cultural significance. So yeah, you see it across the world. Sounds awesome. Yeah. I'd like to, I need to read more about that. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's Googleable. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so what about um, like artwork and and then I guess tattoos as well am i right in thinking does even fadlan describe the, the the images as like tree like is that i've not made that up right there's I, there's, there's a little bit of discussion about the actual wording um but but i think it's a it's a reasonable um interpretation yeah uh so i did a comparative survey of english translations you can see it on mimi's burner too um and matthias and i have you know discussed this a fair amount in the past uh, it's kind of unclear exactly what he's talking about from the wording uh, in a lot of ways, but, you know, scholar, scholars generally agree that he's referring to tattooing of some kind uh, on the roofs. Mm-hmm. Uh, even like, if, patterns, unclear. But I guess even, even whether it's tattooing or just drawing, it's kind of irrelevant to, to this. Is it, because is it, does he mention it, like I say, does he mention it being like tree Am I well, so of one of the things that we can see like on the, yeah, what, I, we can see, what we can see with tattoos, if if you look at actual um, physical remains of tattoos that have been found primarily in the central Siberian area, um, is that it's a lot of animals and a lot of uh, also like vegetative vegetative shapes of varying vegetal. Vegetal, not vegetative. Vegetal shapes. Um, so, so, like, if they did have a tattooing tradition, sorry, there was a coyote that ran past. I, like, <laughs> I wonder what that was. I was like, <laughs> I thought you were getting burgled or something. No, no, it's just you know, random wildlife outside. <laughs> anyway, um, um, uh, so like. What we what we start seeing from I would say roughly around the year zero and on was maybe like five hundred before depending on where we're at in the Eurasian uh, expanse 
is uh, distinct like animal forms and and vegetal shapes in in tattoos. There are even some references to uh, Thracians in in Greek uh, uh, literature where they um, uh, very clearly have sort of like taken names from tattoos that they have and and that's that's usually animal shapes so uh, so i would say that um we could probably expect um a viking ruse over there in around the volga area um to be uh, tattooed with with those kinds of shapes mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh, yeah, you know, this focus on trees also didn't like disappear uh, in the region either. And you know, for example, in uh, Scandinavian folklore, you get figures like the Hildemol, the Elder Mother, uh, who appears to have also uh, existed in the old, well, the um, the English folk record. Uh, we don't have it as far back as Old English, that's for sure, but we do have it in uh, the modern period. And, uh, you know, the attitude towards specific trees is also pretty interesting. Uh, for example, the elder tree in English tradition appears to have been particularly associated with witchcraft. Um, and depending on who you asked, uh, could be it could have been seen as a very benevolent and beneficial tree, uh, or we would really consider more of a bush today, um, or a um, malicious entity that could harm you in some way. Uh, really interesting. Uh, but in Denmark today, you know, you can... I was pretty shocked when I first went to Denmark to encounter a discussion about, you know, the Hildemol, the the elder mother, uh, so commonly uh, among people in my circle. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, Matthias being a Dane, I'm sure has encountered this the entirety of his life. But for me, it was uh, pretty surprising to to see this really uh, uh, explicit example of like animism alive Mm -hmm. today and and celebrated really um, in the area. Yeah, no, I mean, I I was taught the specific folklore way to uh, to harvest uh, elderberries or elderflower from from the elder uh, when I was a kid. So yeah, it's like a oddly a, a, a strongly surviving tradition in Denmark. Yeah, I, just, <laughs> I just love little th- little things like that that survive. I just I just love them. Yeah, yeah, me too. Absolutely. And there are, there are other figures like this. There's the Ash Lady. Uh, and, you know, this this lady word, too, is the same. It's a descendant of the same word we use for Freya, right? Uh, there There is something interesting to be said about that, the Freya, right? Uh, this seems to have also existed in, in northern, what is now northern Germany. Uh, this idea that these trees were personified uh, as almost goddess-like figures, uh, right? And in the Old Norse record, the closest... Is- is it always female as well? Just to, I don't know if you can tie that in because it does, it feels like it's always, I can't think yeah. of an example. I personally can't think of one other than the green man, which is like the old, mm-hmm. other than that, I can't think of it ever being male. It always seems to be the, female. The only, the only other entity from folklore that I can remember that might not be female, it's the Skorks rule in, 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 in Swedish folklore. Um, but that doesn't have a gender. Really, like it's not specifically a male or female, um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, because you know, in in, in Scandinavian tradition, we also have the elipi, right? Um, uh, so, and that's that's like that's like distinctly this this situation of like you're 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 out late at night, and then all of a sudden you're approached by a hot naked chick, and then you then you get it on. And then all of a sudden you realize that she's actually a tree. 
<laughs> it's like I don't know what you guys have been doing or drinking, but <laughs> oh, you know, you know, somebody stumbled across their mate fucking a tree, and he's gone. Uh, hang on a minute, I can explain this one. She was a woman. It was a really beautiful woman, and then I don't know what happened, but she fucking turned into this tree. That's what happened. Because men are men are just men are dogs. Like he's. He's been walking along. He's he's been to the what he's done. He's been to the pub. He's been down to the to the alehouse. He's walking home, and then he's past this tree that has this little hole in it. And he's looked at that hole, and then he's looked down at himself, and he's looked back at the hole, looked down Man. at himself again, and gone, "Hmm, this looks like it'll fit in that hole." And then he's gone <laughs> doing what he's done, and somebody's walked along and gone, "What the fuck are you doing?" And he's kind of looked at them and gone, "You know what?" I'm going to explain this by saying it was a woman. Dan, this sounds like you're self-reporting. <laughs> <laughs> you're having a wholesome discussion. About- sometimes, I'm, you know, sometimes I'm walking through the woods and, you know, you see a hole. You know, I'm not a human. You see a hole. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> now, well, now we're <laughs> Well, anyway, there are these personifications of uh, trees, right? Uh, comparable to classical stuff, actually, dryads, you know, uh, and it's an extension of this animistic worldview, basically, where vegetation can reflect similar qualities to humankind and certainly a very different relationship with those things, right? Uh, whether there was a Hildemore or a similar figure in Norse myth, uh, the body of myths associated with Old Norse speakers uh, is unclear, but uh, I've actually published a few papers on um, uh, particular goddesses whose whose names may actually be the names of trees. Uh, and this may have been more widespread than we can tell, you know, and a lot of this material, we don't get uh, a lot of discussion about, you know, what some scholars would call quote unquote lower mythology, uh, a term that I would personally object to, but uh, we get more discussion on, you know, d- gods, right? Uh, we don't hear about elves individually very often or, or say the idea of a mermaid, it doesn't really come up too often, except in particular saga material, right? But uh, how all of these things relate to notions of, say, the personification of the sea, uh, which is personified by uh, a few different entities, actually, uh, is a good question. You know, it's hard for us to wrap uh, the modern mind around some of these older, more vague and very poetic concepts. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you can also go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just saying we're, we're coming up to like an hour. So I wanted to touch on a few things before we, we start sure. to wrap up. And one, one main question I had was, do you, how much of a, an influence do you think like geographical position made to, to you, you mentioned earlier about maybe we don't know exactly what, Yggdrasil was and do you think depending on the time period and where you were geographically Yggdrasil would be a different type of tree just to it was what what was around you um and maybe what was important to where you were um yeah do you think that made a, a difference and again we were talking about the driftwood and do you think that would be we we, we have that idea because it was kind of recorded by the people who believed or, or, or were around where driftwood was and maybe people more inland where that wasn't a thing, they had a different idea and it wasn't the same. You know, it feels like it's so easy for us to put things in boxes. And I think we've said that so many times on the podcast that 
what we do know is so little that we attach to it and kind of go, everybody thought that. It's all certainly, maybe not scholars, but certainly like uh, people maybe on my level and where certainly when I started with the podcast, everything that I read, um, particularly if it came from any position of fact, you would then just apply that as a blanket for everybody because it was easier. It was easier than asking the difficult question of maybe everyone didn't or or even then saying like, we just don't know. You kind of just had these ideas of of blanket things. And, and yeah, I wonder if that applied to this as well. Uh, so, okay. Uh, let's take a step back. So when, when this material would be transmitted orally initially, right, we can expect some level of modification based on an intended audience. Okay. So a literary verse is, is pretty well locked in, right. To an extent, but how that material would be transmitted may vary based on the audience. All right. So there is a pretty big difference between say the perception of trees uh, from someone who has spent their entire life in Northern Norway, right. Versus someone who has spent their life in like Bavaria. Okay. It's a different relationship because there are different kinds of trees around. Um, Mm -hmm. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot we can say about this. You know, that's my speculation that, um, the audiences would have different perceptions based on how long ago this was discussed. Now, to be clear, we don't have any explicit <clears throat> examples of Yggdrasil being mentioned in the continental corpus, right? The body of text, but we certainly have it very, very strongly in the North Germanic material. And the implication is that this would have also existed among the continental Germanic peoples. You know, it's pretty widely speculated. <clears throat> Also, I just want to add, we do have some, some you know, material evidence, right? Like, for instance, there's the Fröser Church, right? So we know that Fröser was, like did, it's in north central Sweden, this was a, a, a like, a ritual uh, location before there was the church that was built. And that church is actually built on top of a, uh, a, a tree that has been cut down, um, which I think... And, you know, also parroting all the scholars here, of course, I, I think that's a pretty, pretty significant uh, indication that, oh, this, this was, this was a sacred tree that uh, that was cut down, just like we saw it with uh, Thor's Oak and, um, um, and then we built a church on top of it instead to Christianize the location. That's something that has happened in multiple um, examples, right? And, uh, aside from that, we have those, you know, tapestries and depictions of trees from, you know, the earliest one that we found, if I remember correctly, is from Oseberg. Uh, but then you also have the Överhögdal uh, tapestry that, uh, that that you have tattooed right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that, yeah that, that, that's the image of Yggdrasil that always comes up. Other than like the, the ones you get on Google, they're clearly modern. Um, that's the one. Is that is that the only depiction we have of of Yggdrasil from kind of the time? Well, it's kind of unclear if it actually depicts Yggdrasil or just a sacred tree of some kind. Uh, oh, there don't are... do this to me. Why? <laughs> Why are you doing I mean, that? If it is a sacred tree, it may as well depict Yggdrasil. That's the thing. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, conceptually, it's the same concept. So whether or not it is a narrative. Uh, that is being dis- you know depicted or something else, maybe some sort of practice, you can still assume looming behind this concept of the sacred tree is an, an idea of Yggdrasil or something comparable. 
right? So, uh, you know, I would look at it that way. I think that uh, what's going on there. Uh, the tapestry itself also has a pretty interesting history, which we won't get into, but let's talk really quickly about Christmas trees. Cause uh, you know, I think when people see this popping up, yeah. they're going to be like, Hey, let's talk about Christmas trees. So let's get into that. So uh, mm-hmm. that, that was actually my next thing was let's, I want to talk cause, cause I always thought Christmas trees came from like Prince King, something or other from England who went and got a Christmas tree from somewhere. I don't know. Actually, why. There is there is a little, little bit of the popularization of Christmas tree by way of uh, English royalty, right? Uh, that, yeah, I'm sure. He, like he went and got one from like this evergreen from somewhere, brought it back, and everyone, I I don't know the story fully, but that's kind of the one that that sits there from a youth of like that's where Christmas trees come from. No, yeah. in Denmark, the uh, uh, the tradition seems to originate in the 19th century where. You know, uh, people living in the cities would uh, just like take like branches from evergreens and, and place them around in their house. Um, but please do take it away, Joseph. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this is a really interesting topic to me. It's kind of vague where this this tradition of cutting down a tree and putting it in your house around um around the winter solstice came from exactly how it, you know, it just kind of pops into the record. I think around the 16th century and what is today, Germany, right? Uh, we just suddenly start to see references to it and, and complaints about it in some cases, right? Uh, against this idea of a quote unquote pagan tradition, uh, you know, and it's usually Christian groups. Uh, well, in this case, in, in this time, it would be Christian groups complaining about other Christian groups and trying to out purify them basically, right? Uh, so, but this tradition, it really caught on and it spread to the United States eventually. Um, but we don't know if it was if it already existed for a long time prior to the 16th century. You know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, just because it's not on the record doesn't mean that it wasn't going on for a very long time beforehand. It's just mm-hmm. that nobody mentioned it because they had no reason to do so. Uh, or maybe material that discussed it just didn't make it to us today. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh now, you'll encounter people claiming that it's this pagan tradition, but you will also encounter people claiming that um, it is a Christianized tradition uh, by way of uh, Thor's Oak. Uh, it's, there's a whole cottage industry around this uh, of children's books uh, talking about the first Christmas tree, which is a tree that appeared somehow, perhaps it grew from Thor's Oak uh, being cut down. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting 19th century stuff about this, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, sometimes you'll also see this reported as fact. I think I saw on ABC News the other day. It just like straight up reported as fact that the first Christmas tree came from um, Boniface cutting down Thor's oak. I was just like, all right. Well, okay. wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on ABC so, News. Wow. Do we, um, I guess, once we, we got that, do you want to quickly just explain like what, Thor's Oak is and, and the cutting down. Sure. Matthias, you want to? Oh, no, no, yeah. That one's to you, man. All right. Yeah. So uh, uh, Boniface, who is an Anglo-Saxon missionary, uh, encountered, uh, a, purportedly encountered a group of uh, pagans or quasi-Christianized pagans, kind of unclear from the account that we receive. And this is uh, in the 8th century, right? Uh, a long time before the 16th century. All right. Let's be really clear. That is a really big gap. Okay. Uh, and, uh, Boniface targeted this tree, uh, it, the accounts of this vary a little bit, but I'm going to just give you the, the distilled version, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, targeted this tree, uh, and felled it. It was a sacred tree dedicated to, to Thor, uh, which, which actually the text does not mention Thor. It mentions, uh, uh, Jove, right? With Jupiter. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah. And we interpret this as Thor by way of uh, interpretation. Uh, it was common in the, in the record of the time. Um, and uh, a lot of folklore has spread about this, has grown up around this supposed uh, episode, right? Uh, what we can take away from this is that at the time, they certainly, uh, the church certainly believed that the Germanic peoples in the area had an intense focus on trees, so much so that they should target those specific trees and destroy them. Right. Uh, we see this a bunch in the record going all the way back to the Roman period, right? When it was used, uh, this sort of targeted terrorism was used against uh, Germanic peoples and Celtic peoples and no doubt others as well. Uh, so just a little background on that. Now, uh, it is quite a stretch to link those two things, the Christmas tree to that. But, uh, you know, we actually do see some re- references to trees inside of buildings uh, in the Old Norse record. Uh, Rolf Kraki mm-hmm. saw that. Uh, there is a tree inside that uh, a uh, man goes into to escape a fire from, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an interesting image because that's really similar to Ragnarok, that motif complex where the survivors are in this tree and make it through this great fire. Uh, we also yeah. see... I feel like a right? tree would not be where I choose to go in a fire. But, oh, but a, an old tree is very, very strong. It can be very strong against fire. Uh, uh, that, that's the, that kind of make, brings to a point that I wanted to make just, just really quickly about like this whole episode, I think in general, that we need to strip away all our kind of modern ideas and what we see around us. Because I, I imagine that, I don't know for a fact, you two obviously are going to be able to clear this up for me a lot more, but I imagine stone buildings weren't that common if mm. existed at all, particularly in Scandinavia. Um, so like everything would have revolved around wood in some way of, you know, the ships that they made, they were so important for, you know, going and raiding overseas and the wealth and, and notoriety and status down to the houses. Like everything will have revolved around trees and woods. And when you looked out your window, there will have been trees. It's not like anything like we have today, particularly in the UK where we've had, you know, stone brick houses for a long time particularly natural stone houses. They've been around for a long, long time. And that's kind of what we always had. Um, but you have to kind of strip away all those ideas and really put your mind of this, have been, yeah, be surrounded by wood and it would have been so important. Yeah, absolutely. And a very expendable resource. Uh, you know, I, we can go on about this for a long time as in like, you need a supply of wood to stay alive. You know, you've got to cook with it. You have to build with it. And mm-hmm. if you perceive yourself as an extension of it, it's really interesting to get into that headspace, you know, very hard. It's, just, to- it's easy because I think when this episode started, like the idea of, of people thinking they came from trees was a little hard to understand. Like I was a little like, hmm, like why would they think that? But then when you really think about it, like you just said then, you know, you're using – Trees are made, using for shelter, they're using for travel, they're using for keeping, you know, to cook with. It's the fuel they use to cook with. They're literally everything. So then when you put it like that, it's easy to then be like, well, now I can understand why you would attach yourself to it and go, "We def- this is where we came from because it is such, and certainly at the time, it's such an important material for all-round survival and life that even down to like, Plows, carts, everything is made out of wood. When you when you really yeah. start to think about it, everything is wood. I guess I imagine buckets are wood. 
um yep. like the rat wells if they had you know wells every, everything is wooden base apart from the mm-hmm. little bits of iron and steel i guess that you get for for right. weaponry and where you can make it but everything's revolves around wood and that's mm-hmm. a real problem for archaeology too uh because oh, wood yeah, I is bet. Not- yeah, you know, it rapidly biodegrades. So it's really easy to get this, this misleading view of the ancient world. Um, for example, think of runic inscriptions. The vast majority of them would have been in wood. Uh, yeah. And those that survive uh, out of wood are those that were placed in bogs. Uh, and that very specific, uh, well, bogs or have been dug up under other uh, very specific circumstances, like in Norway, right, mm-hmm. where the soil conditions are right for Uh so we get this really uh, warped perception of the past by way of artifacts that would have been the exception rather than those that would have been more common, right? Uh, that's just an aside. Uh, and now returning to trees and buildings, you know, Volsung, uh, the saga of the Volsungs, that is also um, really focused on this tree, uh, barn stalker, right? Which can either mean child tree or with some modification, um, fire tree, bran stalker, right? Uh, you know, this is a, 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 a repeated motif where there is the central tree and that everything sort of depends on it and rotates around it. Right. Mm-hmm. The whole um, the whole plot of uh, the the saga of the Volsungs is completely triggered around Odin appearing and placing a sword inside this peculiar tree that is inside of this powerful family's hall. Right? Uh, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, as well as, you know, uh, I saw some comments here mentioning Ragnarok. Uh, well, actually mentioning um, wildfires. You know, it is also possible to interpret Ragnarok as a wildfire that comes through, wipes everything clean, and then from those ashes uh, grows an entirely new forest uh, conceptually, right? Because Yggdrasil, you know, being the most powerful tree, would survive this, which is where you would want to go to survive it, you know, the the two survivors. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can look at this uh, in a very tree-centric mindset uh, is Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. And I think that opens up a lot of doors and a lot of possibilities. And uh, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of this happening um, today, but, uh, you know, a lot of excellent scholars are working on uh, material discussing some of these, these facets. Mm -hmm. It's it's fascinating. And that's why, again, at the beginning of the show, I'm like, when I heard trees, it's like, that sounds a little bit, Dull. Mm-hmm. But but then but I, but 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 yeah, I've done this long enough that I knew that usually these are the episodes that really intrigue me, and you learn so much. And I think that's the case for this. It is just such a, a fascinating thing. And then once you really start to try and change your mindset and look at things of how you know maybe they would have looked at it, and and even like you said, just look at it from. Trees then with like with, with Ragnarok, you can really start seeing different avenues. Yep. And I guess that's why I, I love this so much is that we just don't know. Because Matthias is going to tell you that Ragnarok is a volcano. Like, or a wildfire. I, I'll accept that too. Fired <laughs> by it, volcano. It, hey, we're talking about the continent versus a place like Iceland. You know, again, <laughs> mm-hmm. this is localized perception of, of a complex of motifs, right? Mm-hmm. So say, uh, for example, continental Germanic peoples, if such a belief existed at the time, something comparable to Ragnarok, uh, which I think to be the case, judging by the textual record, you know, there are some references to something that could be comparable to Ragnarok. You know, um, a forest fire is not necessarily a negative thing. That's the thing. Forest mm-hmm. fires are completely natural. They're important for the health of a forest. Uh, you know, these massive fires that we have today are a very different story. Uh, that is a result of climate change as well as mismanagement 
of force uh, and treating force as a, as a product rather than um, a, a feature and function of the ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but when a great fire comes through, some plants depend on this, uh, right? And uh, the, the, the ways in which uh, force evolve and change, you know, force is not always just static and the same thing, you know, different uh, uh, types of plants grow based on like, you know, values like shade and soil composition and uh, how old that forest is, you know, a forest fire can be very important. And uh, when people think of Ragnarok as this very negative idea, uh, you know, if someone in on the continent, if they were surrounded by trees and at the time, you know, quite a bunch of trees were probably cut down, um, it is possible to conceive it having referenced something like a forest fire at some point, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just throwing that out there. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for, for both of you then. Yeah. Um, do you think that the Ragnarok was one individual event like a wildfire or volcano, or one cat- cataclysmic event that happened in one area and then those stories spread from from there kind of like spread outward of this event that happened and kind of, you know, took everything to ruins and it all started again. And that kind of spread from there. Or do you think that there was a series of different Ragnaroks over different like time, different times, like localized ones for like different areas, like geographically, like little, you know, cataclysmic events that happens or disasters happen in an area. And then that's kind of their own little Ragnarok. And then, you have these different ones and they all eventually merge into this one story. You want to go first, Matthias? No, I want you to go first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I, you know, I would say, so whenever a question like this comes up, like where did this come from? I would generally just caution against it. You can talk about how it has evolved or perhaps, you know, um, well, let's put it this way. There are some things that are comparable and other bodies of myths in Europe uh, to Ragnarok. Okay. Uh, for example, uh, the ages of, uh, of early Greek myth, right? Where a cataclysmic event comes out, wipes everything, and then it starts over with new people. Okay. This happens again and again. You've heard of the golden age, all these things. One of them involves tree people, for example. Uh, this idea of, of ages uh, may also exist in, uh, may also be represented in the modern English word world. Okay. That's actually a compound meaning uh, of where uh, which is like age of man, right? This, this idea of the world. Okay. Uh, this may imply, uh, and this word actually appears in the nine of charm in an interesting manner, uh, that there was this idea of ages, uh, and in an early Germanic period as well. Uh, and Ragnarok to me sounds very much like this because things don't end there. They just pick up again. Okay. So especially when you're talking about a people who appear to have believed in reincarnation, right? We get references to this in uh, uh, Old Norse material, very explicit references. In fact, we get like a whole aside in Eddie poetry. That's like, Hey, people used to believe in reincarnation, which is just like, <laughs> we don't usually get that sort of like straight up commentary, especially oh. not in the poetic Edda. What's mm-hmm. that? So, well, this implies a cyclic view of the world, okay, Mm -hmm. that people come, they leave and they come back, okay? And we see this too in uh, Voluspa where uh, Ragnarok is described so detailed. Uh, The world 
sort of begins and then it sort of ends and then it begins again, implying instead of like getting to point A to point B, you're just going from point A to point B and then doing it over and over and over again. Okay. With some variation. So the idea that this is like the end of times is, is not what we see in the poetry. That's for sure. Uh, we actually just see a lush new beginning, just like you would see if a forest fire came and cleared everything out. And then the woodpeckers came and the insects came and then things got really lush and green again, right after it, because the soil has been, uh, you know, so full of uh, um, ash and coal coal and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, if you want my uh, answer to this, of course. If you have read my book, Dan, then you will know. <laughs> maybe I, maybe I've read it, and I'm just saying you up. You don't know. Sure, yeah. Like you didn't <laughs> fuck that tree either. Okay. Um, <laughs> hey, don't tell anyone about that. I can't wait to see the artwork for this episode now. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I was picturing, guys. <laughs> oh, you no, know. That, that, none of us went into this situation thinking that it would be about tree fucking, the, but here we are. The episode is definitely going to be called Hole in the Tree. Dendrophilia. Yeah, there we are. Um, okay, so. What have I got myself into here? <laughs> <laughs> um, what what I am arguing for in, in my uh, book uh, on volcanoes in Old Norse Smith is that what we're seeing is compounding images of destructions of various kinds that are then being applied in Iceland specifically to understand the land phenomenon of volcanoes, right? So it's it's what I call an indigenous theory of volcanism in Iceland. And so um, it's, it's, I would say 99% likely that the images of Huraknarok or elements of the images of Ragnarok existed prior to anybody showing up in Iceland. Um, and there are different reasons for that. For instance, we can compare a lot of the description of Ragnarok with a certain old high German text called Muspili um, that is Christian and in some ways uses imagery from the Bible, but also in other ways seems to use uh, actual uh, Northern European uh, native imageries. Um, and um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the images that we see when it comes to like, the destruction of the world also includes, for instance, the prolonged winter, winter and all that stuff, um, that other scholars have uh, pointed to a certain event, 536 or 35, I, I can never remember which which year it is, but around that time, um, as as the event that, that that sort of like creates those ideas of like a prolonged winter of like several years of winter at a time where we actually see a massive depopulation of Scandinavia. Um, like in some locations in Sweden, it's like 70% of the population disappear in that uh, period because, you know, the, the growth cycles just don't work at the time. Um so, um, so, so, um, it, I, my, my response is actually quite similar to Joseph's <laughs> that like we, we, we see these ideas and, 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 uh, images of, you know, societal collapse or environmental collapse, uh, being used and reproduced and re, uh, um, reconceptualized, uh, when they become, 
important in society, right? And what we see in, in, in Iceland, right after Scandinavians have shown up there pretty much, is two major volcanic events. We have uh, the volcanic event that creates Hat Montagrein, uh, which is which accounts for 25%, if I remember correctly, of the, the lava that has flowed in Iceland in historical time. So that's a lot of lava. Um, and what we find in the, uh, the, the caves that are created by the volcanic tubes where, you know, you, the crust, uh, the upper parts of, uh, of the, the, the lava crust over, and then you still have flowing lava underneath, and that creates tubes. What we find there is massive animal sacrifices and stuff like that, um, which clearly shows that these people responded directly to that volcanic event as something like, oh, shit, we better give those fire demons that live underneath us something to appease them, right? And then later on, we have... You would, though, wouldn't you? It makes sense. If you saw a mountain throwing, like, flaming hot lava, you'd be like, i got to try something. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to try fuck it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's gonna try to fuck it. Um, and then we have <laughs> then we have the Eldgau event, where you have these massive fire columns in the southeastern parts of Iceland that, like, around the Katla system, you have these massive fire columns that are coming out of the ground, and they reach, um, by estimates, like a mile into the sky uh, during the height of that event. That's that's fucking tall and so you'd be able that to see tall. that from 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 most parts of the, the the so like the northwest where where the general population would be living and that's what i've argued that that's uh that's like a surter and a sword uh that has uh, that has sort of been generated from that event right there mm-hmm. um but then there are other parts of, of ragnarok that you know seem to be very much continental like the idea of the the burning tree and and um and and um you know possibly also like the sinking uh sinking ground where like the, the world sinks into the ocean and then so then do you think it's, up. in that case then do you think it is a bunch of different stories all yeah, so put, a bunch of different together. Yeah, motifs or images essentially that that are being compounded, right? So what happens usually, and by the way, this also happened with the pandemic. Um, what happens when humans face some kind of natural catastrophe is usually that they 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 the old stories that exist and somebody remembers here and there and so on they become uh, 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 reinvigorated in different ways. What we saw during the pandemic, for instance, is that a lot of people started referring to the Black Plague in Europe in the 1300s and like making all of these like correlations and, and comparisons and, and, and such um, between that event, which is the monumental, uh, we're going to die from a sickness event in our brains, right, culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so comparing that to the, the, the COVID pandemic, which was, you know, quite different in terms of, of being being a, a threat to our existence as such. Um, like, for instance, this great example um, was when, you know, the, the discussions raged about shutting down or not shutting down and what should be shut down and all that stuff. I saw some some random historian uh, uh 
writing an essay about how, oh, this is exactly like back in the 1400s in Italy when the plague raged. And, you know, there's like this old poem about some idiot who goes to the tavern and, and drinks wine and then comes home with the plague, you know, and that kind of stuff. So that's that's exactly the same kind of stuff that, that happened during other catastrophes in human history. Mm. I just had a, a thought that I guess with most catastrophes, catastrophes particularly like things with plagues or sickness, that they will, for the most part, you didn't really see it coming. It kind of snuck up slowly and most people, you know, until it kind of got there, you might've heard rumors of it and you won't have known how bad it was really until maybe it came. Um, But whereas with COVID, it was probably the first time in human history that it was the other way around because we live in this global society now where there's all, you know, you can hear things from the other side of the world within minutes, well, within seconds. Um, the, it was almost the other way around that we were told how terrible this was going to be before it came. And then thankfully it wasn't anywhere near as bad. I mean, and that's not downplaying it and saying, it, you know, it was nothing, but it was nowhere near as bad as what those initial few weeks we all thought it was going to be. I remember those first weeks, everyone was terrified. And it was like, it was the, you know another plague. It was going to be this real cataclysmic disaster. And thankfully it wasn't, but it kind of preceded that prior. Yeah. I guess that's the first time it worked, happened that way around. Yeah, no, and that's actually quite interesting. Um, oh, I made a good point. Yeah, you did make a very good point. Uh, it, you know, what you also had in that period was, was that we saw the spread in real time, like as it was being reported, right? I remember here in the US, like one of the first locations to be hit was like actually Washington um, yeah. and Seattle, yeah. right? Seattle, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember so, I was in the 32nd floor uh, of my, I work in the private sphere. Uh, and uh, I was in my office job and uh, we started hearing, you know, these nursing homes where there was just all these deaths all of a sudden. And uh, it was just like spreading like crazy. And actually the building next to us, uh, they detected some infections and we had to, we just had to leave. Right. People mm-hmm. were just like leaving the office. Uh, I am not in Seattle at the moment. I'm just South of Seattle. Yeah. Respond yeah. to it. Which yeah. is- <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. The, the, the chat's always a lot of fun. It's always it always goes a little bit, bit crazy in there. I I love reading it, Drew. And, and um, on that note, let's. I mean, let's. We can we can wrap this up. It's been a it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, course, bless him. You can hear. Let me mention one more disaster here. You know, when you read these texts about Ragnarok, you know, there's another disaster happening, which is climate change, and this is a prophecy. You know, uh, it is literally a prophecy about uh, environmental destruction. Uh, if you haven't really had the chance to sit down and just take a close look at this material, I really recommend, you know, that you do, uh, because it is really, really interesting to see how something so ancient, uh, whether this description, you know, uh, as Matias says, it came from um, a compounding set of motifs or not, uh, it is just as relevant today as it was at the time, uh, regardless of what those people uh, experienced, mm-hmm. uh, which to me is extremely fascinating and, and quite harrowing, actually. Do we have a good source of where people can check that out? Yeah, you should check out my book, uh, as well as uh, my website. I have uh, Mm -hmm. the comparative Bolospa there where you can compare six translations uh, of the text uh, and see how these translations can be very, very different uh, with good reason too, uh, with good arguments uh, in many cases. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah, let's wrap this up. Like I said, 
it's a lot of fun. I knew it would be. be these topics, they're always they're the best. It turns out, you know, every time they just become so much, uh, so entertaining, so much to learn from them. Even, you know, even if I was a little bit disrespectful and thinking it might be having that. Well, it's just that initial th- thought. Um, but I always, like I say, I always knew it would be very interesting. So thank you very much, Joseph. It was uh, a lot of fun. Great to chat with you, Dan. Always yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so um, much for joining us. Yeah, before before we go, do you want to just give a shout out the website, everything you're working on, the company, uh, let people know where they can find you, follow you. Uh, yeah, just go to mimisbrunner.info. Um, I believe we'll have a bunch of links with this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, just provide some links there. Awesome. Matthias, where can people find me on Instagram? Find me on Instagram by Matthias Novik. <laughs> and you can also check out my website, MatthiasNovik.com. And yeah, that, that's that. Perfect. Yeah. If you if you like the show, please leave it a five-star rating positive review wherever you get the your podcasts. And again, if you want to jump in on the chat, that you know, the chats are always a lot of fun. There's, you know, we have a a good group of people who watch the show every every week and the chat is always hilarious. Sometimes you see me sat here just laughing, covering my face. I have to put my hand over my mouth sometimes just because I'm chuckling away to what I see in there. So if you do want to see the chat and join in, please just support us on Patreon at any level um, and you get access to that. Also, you get early access to a lot of the episodes. And in the new year, we're bringing some new videos from you, Mateus. Um, Jonas is going to be back. We're going to do the story time once a month. Uh, we're really going to kind of push and focus on that and get a lot of good content out for those people that have supported us for as long as they have. Uh, yeah, let's let's get out of here. Let's. Um, I'm going to go give Rocco some cuddles before he has his little Rocco's removed. Bless him. <laughs> All right. So, Ciao, everybody. <laughs> thank you very much, Joseph. Again, thank you very much. Um, and we'll do this again. I'm sure you have a wealth of knowledge that you can teach us about.